decades ago, Dr. Richard Florida coined the term creative class when he identified a unique group of people who used their knowledge and expertise in creativity to generate income, i.e. tech innovators, musicians, bloggers, and others. His work has shaped the thinking of modern economics and social sciences. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Florida to discuss who this class is, as well as how the pandemic shifted the world even more into the creative economy. Dr. Richard Florida is a researcher and professor serving as university professor at University of Toronto's School of Cities and Rotman School of Management, and a distinguished fellow at NYU's Shack School of Real Estate. He is a writer and journalist, having penned several global bestsellers, including the award-winning The Rise of the Creative Class and his most recent book, The New Urban Crisis. He is the co-founder of City Lab, the leading publication devoted to cities and urbanism. He's an entrepreneur as founder of the Creative Class Group, which works closely with companies and governments worldwide. And with that, I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is the Aiming for the Moon podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast and subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and now Facebook at Aiming the Number Four Moon. You can check out our website, aimingforthemoon.com, for links to our merchandise, lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. You can see my other meanderings at taylorgbledsoe.com. Okay, let's do this thing. Sit back, relax, and listen in. Well, welcome, Dr. Florida, to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. And you can just call me Rich or Richard. That's totally cool. Okay, well, great. So to start off, I wanted to ask you, could you lay out the thesis of the creative class? I know you've written multiple books about this. So can we just kind of summarize the idea before we dive into any of the of the further topics? Well, you know, and I think your your listeners will get this more than people my age, because it's been sometimes controversial. Um, with people my age, you know, and really sometime probably around the turn of the cent, like the 2000 mark, you could see that our economy in America was changing from this old kind of like heavy industry, steel, cars, like manufacturing economy, which is what my dad did for a living. He worked in a factory in Newark, New Jersey, to this new kind of economy, which like we're participating in today. Like I think about it, we're talking on a podcast where instead of working so much with your hands and your back and your strength on a farm or in a factory, for lack of a better word, you were working with your head. So people call that like the knowledge worker. And it's really cool. There's a guy named Peter Drucker who came up with that theory. And one day, and I'm, this is this is truth. I was in the library at Carnegie Mellon and I came where I taught. I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. I came across this book by a I now know the guy, but he's a famous psychologist called Robert Sternberg at Yale. And, and the opening line went, if you come across a great artist like Pablo Picasso or Andy Warhol or a great musician like Mozart or Beethoven or Jimi Hendrix or whatever, um, John Coltrane, or a great like technology founder like Steve Jobs or a great like he went down the list, political leader, you have come across the same kind of person that's a creative person. And then I thought. It's not the knowledge that we accumulate or the technologies we produce. It's really this thing that all people share, boys and girls. And I have two little girls, boys and girls, men and women, regardless of race or ethnicity, regardless of sexual orientation or family, whatever. We all have this innate creativity. 
So that's when I came up with this idea. It was a creative class and it was artists and scientists and technologists and people who do knowledge work. And, and I was really hesitant to call it a class because like only people like Karl Marx, like do that. And I went up to meet my liter my editor in New York City. I was working on this book. It didn't have a title. And I said, you know, I've been thinking about these people who work with their minds. And he said, well, Richard, you've identified a new class. I'm like, what? And he's like, well, tell me about it. I said, well, we looked at this and a third of the workforce does this kind of work up from like 5% in 1900. And, you know, if you look at like certain places like the San Francisco Bay Area or Boston, Massachusetts or New York, I went on Boulder, Colorado, they have really high concentrations, like 50% of the people do this kind of work. And he said, well, that's called the creative class. So that was my thesis. And then my thesis is that the creative class was kind of changing society. Like my father's class, the working class did that we had different ways of working. Well, you can see that now with remote work and the, the people not wanting to go to the office as much. You can see that in the way we dress. We dress more casually, don't wear a suit and tie. We don't wear like fancy dress pantsuits. Um, you can see that in the way we want to live, that people want to live a different way and live a different style and live in more open mind. So anyway, that was the thesis. And, and the book came out in 2002. And ever since that, it's, it's stimulated a great debate and conversation. So one of the ideas that I found particularly fascinating was these creative people cluster in cities. So could you kind of explain that real quickly? Well, sure. And and what made the book kind of notorious and infamous was I, I was a pretty conventional thinker. That's the only way to say it. And um, I came back from a sabbatical at Harvard and my dean at the time said, you should meet this guy named Gary Gates. And I said, why? They said, well, Gary Gates has been studying the location of gay men. And at that point, you no one knew. You, the census didn't ask a question like, are you gay? So Gary had created the statistical formula that could discern who looked to be like a gay man. And what he found was that gay men clustered in San Francisco. OK, that's what he found. So he and I learned you have to be kind of witty when you work in a field like this. And Gary was a gay man who had a long history in kind of gay rights advocacy. And he said, name me your 10, your top five hotspots for the creative class. And I just said, like the same ones I said before, San Francisco, Boston, Seattle. I forget what else. San, I mean, San Diego and Austin. Let's say I said those five. And he said, you just named five of the 10 gayest cities in America. And we started to laugh. And we did this statistical analysis looking at the association between the location of gay men and the location of the creative class. We also created this thing we call the Bohemian Index. We looked at the concentration of artists and musicians, and we uh, this actually landed me on Stephen Colbert's show. But we found that there was this clustering effect, very noticeable for gay men, very noticeable for, for kind of uh, cultural uh, creative bohemians, but also notable for the creative class. And that and the creative class people were driven to more open-minded uh, cities, if you will, places where they could, uh, you know, talking to people like your, your age and maybe a little older, even because I was teaching college students, so kids in their 20s, like, I remember this, like, like, I asked my students one day, think about it, I'm kind of conventional professor, I go to my class at Carnegie Mellon, there's all these kids in their 20s, and I said, where do you want to live where you grow up? And nobody says Pittsburgh, it's in Pittsburgh. I want to live in Austin, I want to live in San Francisco, I want to live in New York, I want to live in Boston, I want to live in all these cities. And I said, why? And they said, because they have energy. I'm like, what do you mean because they have energy? Well, yeah, I can be myself, and I... And then they started to say, like, I look for places where I can see gay couples or I look for places where I see street musicians or I look. And this is 
like 20 years ago. I look for places that have an exciting like street music scene. And, and what came of that is that people wanted places where they could be themselves. They didn't want to have to be a, a work person and a home person. They wanted to be a single person. And they felt that certain of these cities, at least then, fit them. And yeah, we found this clustering of the creative class. And it, it's not just in big cities, you know, college towns, Boulder, Colorado. I mentioned Austin, Texas. You go down the list, you know, had these big clusters. A place like Columbus, Ohio had a big cluster of them. You know, so so it was really interesting, and it, it led me into all new ways to thinking about the way we live and kind of work and forge community. It's a very interesting concept, and you also discuss how if you want to succeed in different areas, you should move to some of these hubs, because you just have this, yep. this energy, as you talked about, especially in whatever area that you're interested in. Yeah, it's, it's changing now. I mean, if you talk to somebody like Gary, he would say like, well, you know, gay men 20 or 30 or 40 years ago had the cluster because they just weren't accepted. Now they've spread out and they're everywhere. You know, I think the world has become as much as we're a polarized or divided society, a better place. And certainly when I go all around the country, you know, I go to small little towns, you know, places, Milwaukee in the Rust Belt or Pittsburgh where I live, they're completely changed. They're really dynamic. They have they're open-minded. They have great coffee shops. They have buzz. You know, you go to places in the South, like Nashville or Tulsa, Oklahoma, out West, where I spent a lot of time, or Bentonville, Arkansas. I often say they're even more exciting because they're less expensive and it's easier to start a business and a chef can open up a restaurant. So I think over the past 20 years, the, the whole country and the world has changed. And I'm kind of surprised, you know, sometimes I pinch myself. I make fun of my, I'm like make fun of myself. I'll go to a hotel in one of these cities and go, holy, well, well this whole creative thing, class thing caught on a little bit. I'll kind of pinch myself and make fun of myself. But yeah, m- but the most important thing I think is that one of the things I came to learn in a subsequent book I wrote is that like my mom and dad told me a lot about, well, my dad only had a seventh grade education. So go to school, study hard, get a good job. My mom said, don't listen to your father. You know, he only had a seventh grade education, but I married him. We had you two guys and we love you guys. And it's like, we had the best family ever. So pick your right partner. And what I came to conclude is the place you live is actually more important, the most important decision you'll make. I think that's really important for folks listening in because everything in your life depends upon, I mean, you have your phone and stuff and you have a computer and you can connect, but really like the people you can date, you can have a long distance relationship, I guess. You know, the jobs that are available to you, if you have kids, the schools that your kids will go to, the friends that you meet, the networks you'll develop. It's all dependent on the place you live. So I always tell people that's important. Wherever it is, whether it's, and I think now you have more choice. Like when I was young, like you didn't have much choice. There weren't that many exciting cities. I think now you could choose to live like in an urban center, in a suburb, even in some of these rural places. But one thing I will say is that young people, young dynamic driven people, like post-college, they tend to head to the biggest cities. That's one trend we see. Even when they say like, oh, 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 people are abandoning New York, it's COVID. What we find is that young folks post-college are still going to the biggest cities. And I think, you know, I said this in my book, it's not just because there's a great labor market, there's a great people climate, or we could use a great mating market. Like there's better, and I don't mean that like to find a spouse, but there's just better people to make friends with and to meet and to date. There's more choices. So, yeah, we we see younger people in particular headed to the big cities. Another one of these ideas is with the Internet, people often think that the world has become flat. 
And you argue that that's not necessarily true. There are these huge peaks in these large cities and these flat areas in between. Do you think that's changed now post-pandemic, now that um, in per- not in-person work or, I guess, out-of-person work or out-of-office work has become more acceptable? Um, like, we're having this interview. I have no idea where you are at the moment, but I'm in Arkansas, Central Arkansas. So that's very far away from New York and all the other cities around the country. Where are you in Arkansas? Uh, Central um, Little Rock. So Little Rock, yeah. yeah, directly in the state. I spend a lot of time in Northwest Arkansas. I just did like the economic strategy. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time in, in Northwest Arkansas, a lot. Like, you know, I'm there a few times a year. It's kind of amazing what's happened in Arkansas. But there is this guy named Tom Friedman. He writes for the New York Times. He wrote a really incredible book called The World is Flat. And it, it's super important. And he's he's right, like, the world is flatter. Like, like it, when my kids have friends from all over the world, you can make friends all over the world. You, when you go across the world, you can get the same coffee. We, we like my dad, like ate different food than somebody in China or somebody in Germany or something. He dressed differently. He drove a different car. Now, like I went to Siberia once, Taylor, and the kids were just like you, and they and the adults didn't speak English, but the kids in Siberia spoke perfect English. Like. I was just in Hungary. Go anywhere across the world now. The world is flat. But 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 what happens is it doesn't mean we're all spread out in like equidistant points. What's happening is that the, the world is both flattening, and I said the world's becoming spiky at the same time. As we globalize, as we have more choices, as we can live anywhere, we actually cluster more. And I think this is something, whatever you want to call this kind of two-sided thinking, that confuses people. They want to think the world is either clustered or decentralizing. The world is either coming together or or pulling apart. It's either pushing us closer or pulling us further. The fact of the matter is both of those things happen together. As as we've spread out, we've become more clustered. And what I was saying is like people living in a big city, and by a big city, I mean, it doesn't have to be New York or Shanghai. It could be Little Rock. They, they have more in common with one another or a college town like Boulder than people often living in the rural hinterlands outside of them. And that's the point I was trying to make, that that there is this spikes and there is these valleys. And, and that I was trying to say the world is concentrated and clustered. I think what's happening now with remote work is we're seeing the same thing. That yet, I think we're seeing young people flock to big, like rents in New York City have never been higher. That's because young people after college are going to New York City because they think it's an exciting place to be. By the way, that we've seen that after pandemics, like going back millennia. But, you know, people who have a family like me go, oh, well, maybe I don't have to live in a small apartment. Like, maybe I could move. So, yeah, some of them go, like, to the suburbs. Well, that's always been the case in America. But then people go, no, I don't have to just go to the suburbs. I can have Zoom. I can have remote work. Oh, maybe I could go to the like Hudson Valley outside of New York. I could go live in the Hamptons for a while. Or, you know, I could go to Jackson Hole or Bozeman, Montana. Or I could go to a less expensive city like Nashville or Little Rock or Bentonville. You know, I, I, I think that I think that now people have more choices. And what you're seeing is that people with fan, I, there are three great moves. When you get done with your education, typically big city, not when you get married, but when you have kids, like my parents moved to the suburbs from Newark, New Jersey, when they had two kids. You have to figure out where you can have more space in a backyard and give your kids a good life. And then like when the kids leave the nest. And I think, yeah, and I think the clustering occurs, more clustering occurs early on, and then people spread out and then maybe they cluster again. So unfortunately, we have to wrap up and go with our last two questions that we ask all of our guests, which are number one, what books have had an impact on you? 
Well, I love to read. And one of the things that I'm kind of depressed about, like for you all, is like you don't read as many books. And that, I'm not trying to be like this old fart, like complaining. But like when I was a kid, I would go to the library. And this was like my, other than playing my guitar, like this was my favorite thing, like to go read books. And I loved it. So when I was a kid, a, kid, a teenager, I went to the library in Newark. My dad didn't have an education, only went to seventh grade, but he took me to the library in Newark because I outgrew the library in our little town. And I would find these books on urbanism, on cities. And there's a woman named Jane Jacobs. She's dead, but she wrote like in the 50s. Her books had a huge impact on me. We actually became friends. I got to know her when she was older. She didn't like university. She didn't like fancy people. She was very simple. We from Scranton. So Jane Jacobs' books had a really big impact on me. This guy, Peter Drucker, who I mentioned, who talked about the rise of the knowledge economy. And then like great thinkers, like Karl Marx, like, you know, trying to, not, not that I'm like a Marxian, but trying to understand how capitalism evolves or a man named Joseph Schumpeter, who was a kind of a critic and disciple of Marx. So yeah, I think books have always shaped my life and I'm kind of read less. Now. I mean, I read a lot more volume, but I read it online. I have like a book here, like, but I just, I, I love reading. So books mean a lot. And if you came to visit my library, like I have like a whole floor of a university building filled with physical books. And so books really shaped my life and books and music, if you, if you will, they really shape my life. So I would recommend Jane Jacobs, most of all. So then our last question is what advice do you have for teenagers? So look, I'm not a teenager anymore. But it's, it's funny, you'll see this. I remember when I was a teenager really, really well. And, and you have to understand this. Before my generation, which is before your generation, there were not teenagers. I, I just want to say this, like, you are so lucky. Like, my generation was the first generation that created the teenager. My father went to work at age 13. Folks, like, he went to work. I tell my kids this, and they're like, What? Like the little kid, yeah, my dad went to work in a factory at age 13, which was typical until like the 1950s, after the, the World War II. So look, I mean, do what you love. I mean, I had the best teenage years. I played in a band. I read books. I, I wasn't on a treadmill. Like, I, my parents didn't even know if I could get into college, and I got into Rutgers, our local state university. Do what you love. Get off the treadmill. Life doesn't have to be so vicious. I know you have to compete more. I see it in all you guys, but do because it doesn't matter. And I want to tell you this, like I have a PhD from Columbia University. I have friends who are high school dropouts who are just as smart as me. Like that, the, the whole thing that we put these, don't get me wrong. If you love to learn and want to go to school, you should. But you have the opportunity more than any other generation to do what you love. Like when I was graduating, it sounds so terrible. Like I was a hippie and I had earrings and I had long hair and a beard. And like the whole idea of going and getting a job and working with the top, like I, that was ridiculous. So, but there was no other place for me to, like, if I wasn't going to be a musician, like there wasn't a job for me. So I had to become a professor, right? Because professors were accepted to be kind of quirky and eccentric. You guys have like a million zillion jobs. You could, you know what I'm saying? You can work in the civics, social innovation. You could form a nonprofit. You can go to work for a startup. And, and don't worry. I mean, look, we all have to worry about paying the bills. One thing I see in your generation is kids who are too concerned about money too early. That, that, I'm not trying to see be, be dumb and like, 
but like it will work out. If you do what you love, like I made no money, I did what I loved and it worked out. And and I'm not trying to say you'll just glide through life, but if you don't find something you love or you care about, you're going to be miserable. So the most important thing is that little voice inside your soul that's telling you, I want to do this. And like, in my case, I just want to be honest, like I realized I was not going to be like a rock and roll guitar player. I realized two things. One, I was probably almost good enough, but like, I didn't want to be in the dysfunctional world that came with music. I wanted to be in a more normal world. Like you can adapt. So my first choice wasn't probably writer, author, professor. That might've been my second or third choice, but it's pretty good. And and in my case, I did something that allowed me to live flexibly. Like you talked about this work out of the office. I never wanted to have to go punch a clock, but maybe some people like to punch a clock. So do things that you love. And the other thing that I would say is, is this is, sounds so weird. And I have girls, Taylor. So I have two girls. I never thought about having a family. And then we had a family late. And that comes with all sorts of challenges, so-called fertility. I don't mean to like weigh a heavy hand on you, but I think, think about if you want a family, you don't have to like have the family, but think about it and talk to your parents and talk to friends and talk to mentors. But I think in our society, it's, if I had it to do over again, I would, I would have had kids earlier and had more kids. And I'm not the only person who says that. So, so I think, I know that that's one thing you're not, you don't think about that much, but I think you should, you should at least have it in the back of your mind, like not just my work life and my vocation, but my family. And I think you guys, I still think, you know, people say it's terrible and it's awful and the world's like this gloom and doom, sorry, stuff happens all the time. I think you've got a great world in front of you. I, I really do. And it's a big world. And, and the world is like, I lived in a small world. My parents lived in a tiny world. My grandparents lived in a minuscule world. Like, I, it seems daunting, but you, I think the be- better days are ahead of us. So I just, I just make the life you want to make. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Florida, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion about creativity, um, the clusters of where creativity clusters, I guess, is a way to say it. <laughs> and then, yeah, thinking about the future and not being stressed by the treadmill of all of that stuff coming in the future. Great way to... The other thing I would say is you guys are much more balanced with regard to like health and well-being. I I think that's really cool. Like in my generation, people got like drugs and alcohol were not understood. They were thought to be things you did to be cool. And and it took a long time for people to understand that you didn't need that. and, And actually you could work on your health and be physically fit. I think it's a really great thing about your generation, just emphasis on a little, every every generation has their issues, but I think this health and wellness thing that your generation seems to care about is fantastic. And I would I would say that too, like focus on your whole self. And thanks for having me. You're doing great stuff and, and keep it up. And bet whether you like it or not, you're a member of the creative class. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully all of you guys enjoyed it. If you liked it, please rate and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at aiming the number four moon. If you go to our website, aimingforthemoon.com, you can find links to our merch, the lessons from interesting people newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. Yeah, if you want to see any of my other meanderings, go to taylorglidso.com. And with that, 
Again, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to set your sights high and aim for the moon.